Cape Talk. A worldview from London with Adam Gilchrist. Uh, good morning, Adam. A huge international story. We don't have much detail yet, but there is an agreement for a mutual release of hostages and um, a pause in the fighting. Yes, and in return, a release of prisoners. Uh, it's not exactly one for one, but interesting that Israel's government has agreed to back the deal. Uh, Benjamin Netanyahu managed to get his cabinet on side. So therefore, we will, we think, see the release of 50 women and children who've been held hostages in Gaza ever since October the 7th. So we're well over six weeks on that. In exchange for those 50 women and children, a four-day pause in fighting in, in order for that to go ahead, and the release of 150 Palestinian prisoners who have been detained in Israel. So 50 for 150. Uh, Benjamin Netanyahu says the release of every additional 10 hostages will result in another additional day in the pause in fighting. So potentially, that's nearly a month's worth of ceasefire. It's weird, isn't it, to think trading people's lives as a commodity in time. That's kind of what it is. For weeks, Qatar has been mediating uh, between Israel and Hamas, and the Israeli military says it has an ethical and moral duty to see captives returned home. Well, they would say that, wouldn't they? But uh, we haven't had actually much from the Hamas side in all of this. But, I mean, ceasefires, truces, prisoner exchanges, they're always fraught. They're always prone to break down. But fingers crossed at this stage, because amongst those 230 or so hostages being held, there are some quite sick people, some very elderly people and some very young people. And frankly, they need to come out and go home, don't they? Yeah, so in, in terms of the detail and their different nationalities and the United States and Egypt have also been, well, they've been credited by both the Israelis and the statement from Qatar as being very involved in this. And there's no indication as to whether um, American hostages are going to be released first because of the American involvement in this or whether it is going to be, as you said, the sickest, the oldest and the youngest that will go first. Yeah, uh, although we did see with the Rafa crossing, didn't we? It was Americans went first there. They were the first, basically, to start crossing uh, when finally Gaza had a little bit of sort of given uh, to and fro, shall we say, with people. So, yeah, you, you do wonder. You, you slightly cast your, your eyes up and think, oh, no, does that mean if you've got a credit card, you're out first? Let's hope not. And I've never been a Top Gear fan, but I know that, well, I wouldn't say that I'm in a minority, but uh, I do know that there is a sizable number of people around the world. Maybe they'll be less sad that Top Gear is being put into the garage now because they might feel that after Jeremy Clarkson left, Top Gear kind of um, dropped into a pit. Well, I feel like it. Yes, it, it was. Uh, it was put up on bricks for a little while and found its way. And eventually, I think, thanks to Paddy McGuinness in particular and Andrew Freddie Flintoff, it found its way back to being the top gear that it had become. Once upon a time, they used to review cars that you and I might drive, and then, of course, it became much more so, much more of an entertainment show with explosions and chases and crashes and races and stuff. And it has now continued that way, and unfortunately, one of those crashes saw Andrew Flintoff hurt, uh, and very badly hurt. His crash was last December on a test track in England, and he wasn't seen in public until September. So nine months went by. And when he did finally appear, oh, my word, his face looked terrible, scars and 
and the, the cut up nose and round the eyes and I mean all across the face. So clearly that was bad. The fact that the BBC had to apologise, pay him nine million pounds in compensation. But we've got an unseen safety report. So an independent inquiry basically looked into the details of the crash and we won't see it. It won't be published. But as a result of that, they've obviously decided to bin Top Gear 34 series and out. And given that Jeremy Clarkson's alternative Grand Tour show also got binned, not because of what happened on a test track, but because of his comments about Meghan Markle, whoops, therefore wanted a petrol heads program. It doesn't sound like you or I, John, are going to be up for that. Oh, I think we'd be fantastic on a show like that. <laughs> <laughs> the fact that nobody else is like, do you think we're fantastic? That wouldn't matter. We'd think we were fantastic. Oh, that wouldn't bother important. us, would it? <laughs> no, not at all. And I wouldn't mind having a crash in exchange for £9 million either. Um, uh, fanatical brain power? What are they doing in Chile? Yeah, what they've done is they've had a look. A team of scientists uh, based in Santiago have had a look at why people are so fanatical about their football teams in particular. And Chile is a football-loving country, all right? I mean, above all the other sports. Maybe tennis sneaks in a tiny bit. But uh, why are people's lives so influenced? And what they've worked out essentially is that some people's brains work differently. So it depends how you're wired, basically, as to whether you are you know, terribly passionate about sport or mildly interested or not at all interested or whatever. Uh, so they found that different parts of football fans' brains are activated when scoring or conceding a goal. I mean, when their team is. But uh, also the hub that regulates control, increasing the likelihood of violent behaviour, also begins to alter. Hence, fans getting so passionate that they will kick the living daylights out of each other. So it's all a question of how our brains function. Um, it's not necessarily anything you can do about. It's kind of what you're born with. Uh, the same kind of fanaticism for football, they say, is also mirrored in politics, religion, spirituality and identity issues. People get very angsty, don't they, in all sorts of walks of life. And again, it's down to how your brain is wired. Um, although they took sport as the thing because it's easier to measure the innate ups and downs. Team loses one week, wins the next, etc. All this in the Radiological Society of North America. That's where it's been published. We kind of knew it there, didn't we? Why, why is that guy so nutty about football? Because he's nutty about football. That's basically the conclusion, isn't it? <laughs> I'm less nutty about football because my team is... Although United have the best record of all the teams in the EPL if you look only at the last five matches. How's that for a statistic that's hard to believe, even for a Manchester hard to believe. United Weird. supporter? Yeah. Oh, and Everton this weekend, and Everton trying oh. to make a statement after that 19-point... Um, deduction. Oh, it's all very interesting, Adam. Thank you very much indeed. May there be lights and brights and sights and fight. No, no fights in your day.